The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. This Memorial Day weekend was unlike any other I've ever experienced. There were no parades, no picnics, no three-day getaway that always ends finding ourselves in a gigantic Monday afternoon traffic jam, muttering under our breath, never again. How many years? I'm not going to count them. Have I made that vow? And how many years following that the next year have we set off for an adventure on the first long holiday weekend of summer? There was no adventure this year. Not while California is still taking baby steps out of our shelter in place. The governor's order remains in place and most of us complied with low-key observances. Out of doors, less than 10 people, not further than 10 miles from home, and wearing a mask to protect each other. Neither the governor nor any of our public health officials are under any illusions that the baby steps we are taking toward normalcy represent the end of this pandemic. Rather, they are the end of the beginning, flattening the curve, coping rather than overcoming. This is a hundred year pandemic. It's the pandemic that George W. Bush ordered his National Security Council to plan and prepare for during most of his years in the White House. This is the pandemic Barack Obama protected the developed world from when he leaned forward and sent medical teams to Africa to deal with an outbreak epidemic size of Ebola. This is the pandemic the incoming Trump administration was briefed on during the 2016 transition. But that was before Donald Trump fired Chris Christie and his entire transition team. This is the pandemic that the Trump administration's Department of Health and Human Services tabletop walked through in 2019, but then never followed up on the lessons that they should have learned from that tabletop exercise about things like PPE. Since this is the pandemic I never dreamt that you or I would have to live through in 2020, I used this Memorial Day weekend to read the very well-respected John Barry book on the subject, a book called, this is the book that George W. Bush read in 2003 when there were 16 people killed in a SARS outbreak of a chicken flu in China that caused him to read this book. It's called The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. And that book so alarmed George W. Bush that he made every member of his senior staff read it And then he he ordered the national security team to develop a pandemic preparedness strategy and plan. He got regular briefings, detailed briefings, from 2003 to the end of his presidency in January of 2009. 
His work was followed on by Barack Obama, who found the same book and found it equally compelling. This is the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems, I don't make them. And what I found looking for solutions was that The Great Influenza is a riveting book. I learned a lot. I learned about the history of medicine, about biochemistry, yep, about RNA and DNA and other things. I learned a lot about 20th century, early 20th century American and, and allied politics. And I learned some things about human nature, or should I say I was reminded of some things about human nature. What struck me the most, though, was the similarities to the current COVID-19 situation. Yes, there are differences, but the similarities are striking. As a businesswoman, I look at the numbers when I analyze a problem and consider solutions. And so a comparison of the numbers from the Spanish flu a century ago to, the, to our current experience is staggering. But to understand those numbers, what they mean, we got to take a step back and get a little bit of perspective. What I learned in the Berry book is that the practice of medicine changed very, very little from the Roman Empire to the American Civil War. Even in the years that followed the Civil War, admission to a so-called medical school did not require a college degree or any college at all. It offered, in its classwork, no understanding of chemistry, physics, or physiology. There were no anatomy classes. There weren't even any lectures on human anatomy. There was no commonly agreed to verifiable understanding on the causes and cures of disease or even the definition of what disease was. Just the assumption that the unwellness was something that might kill the patient. And that was the history of medicine until the 1880s. A mid 19th century philanthropist, John Hopkins, was deeply affected by the suffering that he saw disease causing among Civil War soldiers. And in his final years, he resolved to do something to alter that situation. So he bequeathed in his will a very significant sum, the majority of his fortune, to the establishment of a real medical school and teaching hospital similar to what was emerging in Europe in Baltimore, Maryland. It was during the 1980s that this campus developed into the first center for the study and teaching of medicine in the United States. I mean, medicine in the sense of scientific laboratory, anatomically correct, actually be able to help the patient medicine. That same school would play a very significant role in the research that surrounded the 1918 pandemic. And it is home today to the National Institutes of Health and Infectious Disease. And Anthony Fauci, who heads that center, 
is a direct descendant of the first true medical scientists in the United States, men who made their mark in the years immediately before enduring the pandemic of 1918. And by the end of that pandemic, by 1920, they would wrest global medical scientific supremacy with the work of John, the money of John Hopkins and later of um, John D. Rockefeller, uh, who gave money to Columbia University for another, for the Rockefeller Institute, who has been so important in the testing uh, debate in the current pandemic. <clears throat> so that by the turn of the 20th century, and they were important um, centers of real learning about what we call modern medicine. And by the end of that period, global medical supremacy had shifted from the laboratories of Western Europe to Baltimore, New York, and Boston. But when the so-called Spanish flu first manifested itself, the leading researchers at Johns Hopkins did not yet know. No one had thought of, no one had seen, no one, and they did have primitive microscopes by then, no one, in fact, had any idea that there were such things as viruses, that there was a class of disease-causing germs that we today call viruses. They didn't know that. They kept trying to figure out what form of pneumonia they were dealing with. In fact, at that point, in 1918, there remained some doubt in some scientific quarters that germs caused disease at all, or even existed outside of the mists that came from uncovered sewers. The rapid and gruesome nature of the progression of the disease that came to be known as the Spanish flu was a spur to further discovery. But the research results that began to be seen in the early 1920s came too late to alter the course of the disease. So as we pivot with that perspective to the numbers, we're going to take note of the first major difference between 1918 and 2019-2020. Identification of the pathogen, the thing that was causing the epidemic, the pandemic, shrank from several years a century ago to a matter of just weeks in this instance. And once the virus's genome was made available by the Chinese authorities, work to figure out how to deal with it could begin immediately. And that work goes on today. But we got to get back to the numbers because the numbers are also important in understanding the similarities and the differences between 1918 and 2019-2020. You know, in business, the numbers tell us what's working and what is not. When you're working with a company that's in trouble, you gotta look at those numbers to figure out what you gotta triage right now 
and what looks like it's going to need a longer-term strategic solution. It doesn't appear it's particularly different in pandemics. The numbers will help us to further compare and contrast these two pandemics, separated by the most significant century in our history. Think about science in 1918 compared to we're going to launch a fourth generation of space travelers sometime in the next few days from Florida to the space station. And by the way, this one is really space age and it's made in America. But back to the, we digress, back to the subject at hand. By comparison, in 1918, the U.S. population was about 103 million people. And it remained roughly the same for the next several years. Compare that to we are somewhere between 330 and 340 million Americans today. In 1918, the U.S. population represented 5.7, just under 6% of the world's population, which then amounted to about 1.8 billion, with a B, people. Over the last 100 years, global growth has outstripped U.S. population growth, growing to roughly 7.5 billion people in 2019. So today, the United States is only 4% of the world's total population. The Spanish flu, I want to give you some perspective here. The Spanish flu is estimated to have killed as many as 100 million people around the world. So it killed roughly the, a, a number of people equal to the entire U.S. population at that time. And that was about 6% of the global population. The great influenza overwhelmed the American public health system. So there are no accurate numbers of fatalities. We have estimates. And the best estimate is roughly 687,000 American deaths. So of a population that was just over 100,000, 100 million, excuse me, roughly 6.6% of the U.S. population died of the Spanish flu. These deaths occurred over a period of roughly three years. There were four waves of disease between the spring of 2018 and the fall of 2020. And you need to hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. But let's fast forward to some current numbers because they will give you a sense of comparison. On May 26, 2020, there were 5,515,231 reported cases of COVID-19 in the world. All those cases occurred since the World Health Organization began collecting numbers in January of 2020, so in the last 10 weeks. Holy Toledo. Of those cases, 
1,681,755 of those cases are in the United States of America. And they've all happened in less than three months, all since February 1 of 2020. On May 26, 347,253 people worldwide had died of COVID. Of those, 99,231 were in the United States. Those statistics are somewhere between sobering and alarming. First, despite the astonishing progress in medical science and healthcare, over the last century, the global death rate remains stubbornly close to 6%. And at this point, most of that death has taken place in the developed world. So that tells us, world, we've got a fight on our hands. The statistics for the United States are particularly concerning, concerning because the United States is home for 4% of the world's population, but we are home to 30% of the world's COVID cases and 29% of its deaths. The one thing numbers do not do is they don't lie. We have a problem. Yes, the United States of America the richest country in the world, the country that says, you know, we can spend anything on healthcare because we certainly do. We've got a problem. Yes, we have a worldwide problem, but we in the United States of America have a really big share of that problem and we don't know yet anything about how to solve it. A problem like a virus that's not likely to just disappear. It isn't going to disappear if we just will it to do so because it would have disappeared in 1918 if Wilson had been able to will it to do so. But there is good news and the good news is that unlike 1918, we do know what we're battling. We know it's a new and novel if serious viral infection. The bad news is, while we've conquered many bacterial infections with antibiotics, our ability to similarly control viruses remains frustratingly fleeting. It's much trickier to develop therapeutics to treat viruses because of their rapid ability to mutate. We've made huge progress against some viruses but it was only after years of focused study. Yes, HIV medications have removed much of the disease's threat to normal life expectancy, but from its first identification as a disease rather than a uh, bunch of symptoms, as a disease in 1983, it took four years for the first therapeutic to arrive in 1987, and that therapeutic did not end the threat to normal life expectancy, it just extended it. Today, we have really good therapies. 
and yet, and yet research into new therapies continues still today. There are 37 million people in the world who have HIV. Rendesivir, which um, we have seen offers some promise in the treatment of COVID-19, was originally developed to treat Ebola. And we have found that Rendesivir has can shorten the cycle of infection if a patient's in the hospital, but it doesn't seem to do much good if that patient has reached the ICU. So Gilead continues who makes Rendesivir. It's continuing to work to expand the usefulness of the drug in stopping this pandemic. But there are no promises, there are no assurances, and we know it's not a knockout. Vaccines to treat viruses have been experimented with um, since the 20s, since we conclusively identified that they were a specific class of germs and that their RNA mutated frequently and so forth. But they're a different, they have a different way of binding different toxicity to the human body. So, because viruses change so often, the annual flu shot that so many of us get continues to be a little bit of a gamble because we're gonna immunize you against last year's virus or you know, last, last version of H1, H1N1 we saw, right? But it may have mutated in the following, you know, following the last time we saw it last, last year. So while our pharmaceutical manufacturings are manufacturers are racing each other, racing to make a vaccine that will create antibodies against the known genome, that genome may have mutated. It happened with H1N1. We keep tinkering with that puppy in the vac in the flu vaccine because it does mutate. We don't know specifically if the recovered victims of COVID-19 are protected against further infection. We're trying to figure that out. We've been at this for about 10 or 12 weeks, so we have no idea yet. But the great influenza does offer us hope about the value of herd immunity. If we believe, as most scientists do, that the Spanish flu, like COVID-19, was a SARS-type virus. What we do know from historic records is that people who contracted the mild early infection in the winter of 1918 were not likely to get sick again the following fall when its more lethal version tore across the country and around the globe. Those who survived either of the two outbreaks were then relatively safe. They might get it, but not be so sick again, when the virus mutated a third time into a more dangerous outbreak in 1919, and then a milder mutant outbreak in 1920. On the not-so-good news front, both of these SARS-type viruses are capable of doing significant long-term neurologic damage to their victims. 
Our medical scientists are learning daily more about the lifelong com complications for some who contract COVID-19. There have been organ failure, blood clots causing strokes, neurologic symptoms, and now Kawasaki disease in children and young adults. So no, <clears throat> a SARS virus is not just the flu. Woodrow Wilson contracted the disease in 1919 while he was in Europe negotiating the, what would become the Treaty of Versailles to end the First World War. His doctors reported after his recovery, significant neurologic and temperamental impairment. It is specifically marked by the complete capitulation to the punitive peace treaty terms that were demanded at that time by Francis Clemenceau. It was Woodrow Wilson's position that the world should be magnanimous so that this war would lead to the League of Nations and we would have no further wars ever, that this was the war to end all war. And suddenly, recovering from his 1919 uh, Spanish flu uh, bed, he was so neurologically impaired that he capitulated to what Clemenceau wanted, and we all know what happened um, in 1939 as a result. Those neurologic complications that Wilson suffered in 1919 are thought to be a precursor to the stroke that would incapacitate him the following year in 1920. Leaving us to wonder, even to this day, who was really governing the United States of America prior to the 1921 inauguration of Warren G. Harding? Donald Trump has had a couple of close brushes, but he hasn't been infected yet. Risky behavior in his case, as in Wilson's, could still lead to infection. But what I found the most concerning and consequential to public health are the similarity in the manner in which both Woodrow Wilson and Donald J. Trump saw the, the pandemic of their presidency as an inconvenience, something that stood between them and their rightful place in history. In Wilson's case, the 1917 decision to go to war became a quest for all-out war, pulling out the stops, the war to end all wars, nothing, I mean nothing, nothing like habeas corpus, not even a pandemic could slow his progress or change his course. He was utterly ruthless in his pursuit of his place as a titan of history. In Trump's case, it's the pursuit of a second term as president. It's his desire to secure his position in history and to, in so doing, erase the asterisks of the 2016 Russian interference in his first election. Both President Wilson and President Trump were willing to expend countless American lives to achieve their own history-making goals. Whether it is fake news, Twitter tirades, and self-aggrandizing press conferences, 
or Wilson's blanket suppression of any news that might ne negatively impact the war effort, it didn't matter. There was absolutely a mutual lack of empathy about the consequences for the little guy. Wilson overruled his generals and his surgeon general and put hundreds of thousands of young American troops on overcrowded ships sailing for Europe in the summer and early fall of 1918, even though he knew that a significant number would succumb to the virus before reaching the European battlefields. Let that one think, sink in for just a second. On the crossing, there were daily burial at sea ceremonies for young American recruits, healthy farm boys from the Midwest who within days were dead and buried at sea. As much as a third of the population of Philadelphia contracted the disease after a Liberty Bond rally in September 1918, brought out most of the city's residents. The mayor had been warned the governor had been warned. Wilson insisted. The result was bodies piled in the streets. They didn't have refrigerated trucks in those days. First responders who died by the thousands. Sound familiar? While Barry spends a significant portion of the book explaining the lack of uh, and the search for scientific knowledge that would stop or control, I mean, how desperate these men and, and women were as they took to their laboratories and tried to figure out what it was that they were looking at. What he really comes down to is that there were three treatments that were common to both health crises and they helped. Aspirin, we didn't have Tylenol then, but aspirin for fever. The use of convalescent plasma from recovered patients to stimulate the production of antibodies in a current patient was something that the military pioneered, and we're using it again. The use of masks in social and work settings, and, and they put masks on all the patients in the hospitals, but the use of masks in social and work settings and the maintenance of social distancing. And out of the work that was done in 2003 came a 2007 paper on the importance of social distancing out of research done on the 1918 pandemic um, that is what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks um, have been following uh, with the COVID-19 task force. San Francisco in 1918 was newly rebuilt after the 26, the, the um, 1906 earthquake. And it saw less death because that quake had actually forced the development of a public health infrastructure when you know thousands and thousands of people didn't have homes, et cetera, um, was, became mandatory to do things on, um, more rapidly um, to modernize. And they mandated masks and social distancing in 1918 and largely kept um, the first and second waves of the disease out of the city. So we're, we're attempting that again, folks. And while I do remain optimistic that medical science so different today than it was 100 years ago, I mean, it, it, it's incalculable 
to look at the progress we have made on so many fronts. And when you look at that, then you, it does offer us some hope that in the next few months, when you think about the speed with which you know, science is, is beginning to understand COVID-19 every day, um, that within months, we may have some therapeutics. Therapeutics that reduce the complications and lower the mortality rate, but don't prevent the disease. And history tells us an effective vaccine in 2020 is unlikely. All our fingers are crossed, but it's not likely. I'm a realist and I'm a numbers person. And the daily numbers we are getting argue that we must learn from the experience of 1918. This virus is not gonna take a summer holiday. It raged up and down both the East and West Coasts in, 19, in the summer of 1918. The virus spreads inland from the coasts. So if you're in the heartland, that security blanket isn't worth its stitches. The second wave, and there will be a second wave because it will coincide with a normal flu season and because we are still seeing rising cases in June. So if you think it's gonna magically go away by October, you're not looking at the numbers. So far, we've been lucky. There's been very little mutation of the virus. But that doesn't guarantee, like in 1918, that the second wave is more potent, more lethal than the first. And knowing all of this, you and I, we are our brother's keepers. That's part of what makes us Americans. So while news pictures of overcrowded beaches and bars without, with people without masks and <laughs> no social distancing at all this past weekend represent a small fraction of Americans, their irresponsible behavior still has consequences for all of us. It's our mutual civic responsibility to do everything we can not to spread disease. Think of that as my wear your mask commercial for this piece. And there's an expression that I'm uh, very fond of um, and that I believe in. It's those who do not read history are compelled to repeat it. I don't care if it was, um, I believe it was Churchill who said it, um, although it's been attributed to some other folks as well. But those who do not read history are compelled to repeat it. For example, if Secretary of Defense Mark Esper had read this book, the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt would not have made a port call in Vietnam. Captain Crozer, as he should be, would still be in command. A thousand U.S. sailors would not have gotten sick, and one chief petty officer would not be among the 100,000 dead Americans. If Vice President Mike Pence had read the book, the GOP would not be arguing with the governor of North Carolina about how big a convention, a GOP convention, they can have in North Carolina in August. Air travel has made this world a much smaller place than it was in 1918. 
Oceans and land borders no longer protect Americans from foreign pathogens. We've got to do what we can do. We must pray for a scientific breakthrough sooner rather than later. We've all got to line up, stick out an arm, and get a flu shot in September so that we can reduce that comorbidity. And all of us, well or or sick, um, with comorbidities or totally healthy walkers, runners, bikers, etc., we've all got to wear a mask in public because the life you save could be your own or it could be your child's. Just ask John Barry. George W. Bush did. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.